With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Need advice? Want to know what a pro would say? Get all the answers you need from professionals in this Fox 4 podcast. Ask the experts. Welcome to another episode of Ask the Expert on Fox 4. I'm your host, Hannah Guthrie, and today we're talking about finding your OBGN and your gynecologist. My guest today is Dr. Michael Moore with Providence Medical Center, and we want to talk about how do you find a good baby doctor or a gynecologist. Now, when I first moved to Kansas City years ago, I found mine from a billboard. Now, it worked out. But, you know, he delivered our baby, who's now 25, and he's still my gynecologist. But there's probably a better way than picking a name from a billboard, isn't there? Yeah, I think in general, when you're young and healthy, like um, trying to find a doctor is like not really a priority. You have so many other things going on in your life. Like when the first time you become pregnant, that's the first time when it actually comes in your, you know, scope and you think, oh, I need to find a doctor. And like you said, it's kind of difficult finding where to go and what to look for in a doctor. You obviously realize pregnancy is pretty important. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of different factors that people use to decide, you know, either race or gender or, you know, their experience or availability. And sometimes finding that over a billboard or finding on Google is very difficult. And sometimes you might even need to go to the doctor just to see kind of what their, you know, feelings are about certain things and make sure that you guys coalesce. Is it okay to ask the doctor questions? Because sometimes you have this fear a little bit because you know, you're there and you know, you're white coat and very professional and like, you know, you, we don't know what we're doing, but it's okay to ask questions. Yeah, I think that's a great way to get to know your doctor, get to gain trust. Because a lot of times, you know, a lot of the things that you're thinking might be the same things that other people were thinking, but the doctor has no way of knowing mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, developing that back and forth relationship kind of will help like in the long term, so that both parties kind of trust each other. So what kind of questions should you ask? Let's say I'm coming in to meet you. I'm looking for a gynecologist. I'm looking for a baby doctor. What do I need to be asking? I think pretty much everything is open. Like even if it seems like, oh, this is such an obvious question, I don't really need to ask it. I think those are even good to ask. But probably one of the primary questions are, are you going to be there for my delivery? Kind of what are your thoughts on induction? Kind of what are your thoughts on pain management? Are you okay with birth plans? And kind of establishing that roadmap allows everybody to know, hey, what are the expectations of where this pregnancy is going? I think it's real important for your baby doctor to be there for the delivery because that's the only person you've been seeing to have somebody switch it on you at the last minute. I mean, are you there for the deliveries? Yeah, definitely. That's one of the benefits of how our practice is set up. Like, I'm going to be there, you know, throughout your pregnancy, you know, for your delivery. So a lot of the, you know, trust that has been established, you can know, okay, this is how my doctor thinks. He's kind of explained, like, the diagnosis, kind of explained, hey, what's the possible treatments that can happen? So there's a lot of comfortability in having, like, your doctor there. And I think that's, you know, essentially very important. Now, I know you do have to take vacations. So you're in Hawaii and she's in delivery in Kansas City or, you know, in labor. Um, So how do you handle something like that? Well, one of the things I would say is 
especially when you're starting out, because I've, you know, just began at Providence, maybe one or two years. I've been at other places before, but you're not going to take that much vacation. And a lot of times you're even going to work most of the weekends just to deliver for your own patients or so. So the chances of you not being there for the delivery is pretty low. And even if that is the case, a lot of times you can kind of explain to the patient well before or kind of plan things out so that it doesn't exactly happen when you're going to be gone anyway. So you don't surprise them. Right. What about inducement? I mean, do sometimes women plan their inducement around, you know, your schedule or is that okay to do? I think that's uh, perfectly fine. Like, like I said, I've been in kind of a lot of different areas from the East Coast to the Midwest. And just regionally, people have different feelings on stuff like that. Like some people are really strong on induction. Some people are like, I want to go as, you know, as far along as my pregnancy allows me to go. And a lot of times it's just kind of making a negotiation what the patient wants to do. Because there's no one right answer one way or the other. As long as it's safe, healthy, I think that's kind of good to kind of explore. So that's the only time you induce when you think there is going to be a danger to the mother or child when you really need to do something. Well, I say, you know, as far as like um, how the College of Medicine goes, a lot of times, as long as you get the 39 weeks with a perfectly healthy pregnancy, it's perfectly fine to induce someone. And a lot of times when you're making this section or decision for an induction, it's whether uh, what are the chances that, you know, if we induce you that it's not going to work out and you end up with a C-section or what are the chances that this is going to be successful. So all those kind of are dependent on what the patient wants to do. So it's perfectly fine. I'm perfectly fine with inductions. I'm perfectly fine with letting people go. It's kind of completely up to them. Now, I had a breech baby, and they tried, so I had to end up with a C-section. But they tried, was it called version? Mm-hmm. or Where they're just really pushing... Did that work? It didn't work for me. I know. I would say the last version that I was involved in actually was successful. Like uh, a lot of times you have to be pretty vigorous and kind of move the baby, have two doctors there, have an right. ultrasound. But you, by the law of averages, it's over 50% that most people will be able to be successfully averted. But oh, okay. a lot of times people, you know, just want the safest pregnancy possible. So they just want to avoid that situation altogether and do a C-section, which is perfectly reasonable, especially, you know, in our day and age when not that many people are having, you know, eight pregnancies or 10 pregnancies. Sometimes it's perfectly safe just to do like a C-section opposed to kind of trying to do like a version. It just, everything's kind of each their own. And tell our listeners what a version is. So, Essentially, if the baby's head is kind of up by your belly, you're kind of trying to rotate it down so that it's near the birth canal so that it can kind of come out the natural way or so. And a lot of times, depending on your gestational age, like if you successfully vert it, sometimes they'll just kind of put you into labor with like medication through your IV or break your water or items such as that. But you're actually on your pushing on the stomach and trying to flip the baby around. Right. You are manipulating the uterus from the mother's belly right. and kind of rotating the head all the way down. Now you're saying women aren't having as many babies. What's the most that you've come across? Like how many? I don't know. Like sometimes you'll find people with, you know, 13 babies wow. or 15 babies. And what's sometimes surprising about those, sometimes those are the people who don't have prenatal care. Like they feel like, oh, I've been, you know, pregnant before. There's no surprises. But I would argue that no one pregnancy is the same. Right. Like what can happen in your first pregnancy can be completely different with your second pregnancy. So it's probably vital always to get prenatal care. So how has the medi- the medical care of pregnant women changed over the years, like say maybe from the 60s to now? Has there been a lot of change? Are people well, still having babies the old way? I don't know. I think there is quite a bit of change. 
like for instance, kind of some of the labs that we get preliminary or some of the labs that we get at the beginning are going to be different because people have different susceptibilities to different types of infectious diseases or so. And then kind of, um, you know, if this lab comes out this way, this is the way we're going to treat it. That's kind of changed. Uh, I would say probably in the past that's delivering, there probably was a lot more forceps or a lot more vacuums. Yes, yeah. But I don't think that's as common today. Uh, assisted delivery is probably less than what you get from like a C-section or so. Uh, but ultimately, a lot of times that's having like a vaginal delivery in itself is just about patience. And sometimes when people would use, you know, assisted mechanisms, those would be to expedite the process and it might not be necessary or even natural. Well, and I think it can cause damage because my mother lost a, a child. I mean, he lived for like a couple of days, but they really, she really thinks it was using the forceps to pull him out. I mean, can that yeah, I think that's kill always, a child or, you know, cause. Yeah, I think that's always a possibility or so. But one of the good things about medicine today, they try to approach everything from the safest way possible. So you don't have as many people that aggressive, especially kind of if they're in that young age where they're kind of in between like experience and kind of innovation mm-hmm. and they haven't been out like for like 50, 40, 30 years or something like that. So I would say a lot of those situations are kind of uncommon today. You talked about lab. You do lab work. Uh, are you dealing with very many HIV moms? I mean, and how do you stop uh, them from passing that on to their baby? I would say that's not as common or yeah. so, but kind of depending on the areas you're in, sometimes you will find things like hepatitis C, which traditionally was not tested for like in pregnancy or so. And then sometimes you'll find areas where syphilis is very common and like they'll recommend getting more labs to make sure that someone doesn't pick syphilis up during the pregnancy. And kind of the way you would approach those pregnancies may be a little bit different if they have like a positive test in those uh, scenarios. So what if you had herpes and then you're pregnant? I mean, can you pass that on to the baby or is there a way to avoid that? Well, in general, like it's debatable how many people have herpes or so. Um, Kind of if you look by what's in their blood, that's a lot different from the people who might have outbreaks or something like that. So the way that the baby would get it is if there's like an active outbreak or the potential for the outbreak to be occurring soon. So many people are able to have a vaginal delivery even if they have herpes. And one of the ways we kind of do that is just to prevent people from even having an outbreak by giving them medicine prophylactically to kind of prevent that from happening, especially around the delivery date. So that's why they need to go to the doctor. Yes. yes you know. There is many <laughs> unforeseen things that can happen in a pregnancy, and it's always good to go to the doctor. Okay, what about pain management? Because I know there's some women who like, I've got to have it naturally because it's a badge of honor. I wasn't like that. Well, it was a breach, so I had to have an epidural. But so what, what are your thoughts on that? Well... In general, there's a lot of different types of pain management, like you can have local medicine, like lidocaine or so, and that's useful when the baby's coming out. Or you have like IV medicine, um, that's more useful like in the beginning stages, because that same pain medicine that they're giving through the IV, the baby's kind of getting, and it might be sleepy too. And then you also have like an epidural or so. So it kind of just depends what's important to the patient. I think any way is safe one way or the other. Uh, sometimes if you have like an epidural, you could be more involved in the experience, you know, and sometimes if you don't, you're kind of more a victim of the pain, but sometimes it's like a badge of honor that, hey, I accomplished this. I did it in the safest way possible, but I assure you both ways are perfectly safe. So what do you think about everybody crowding into the delivery room while you're there? I mean, is there like a limit on the number of people who should be there? Yeah, I would say a lot of that's kind of based on what the hospital policy is. Um, You know, throughout my, you know, 
10 years and being an OBGYN, I've seen people who have like loads of people in there. Sometimes it's family, sometimes it's friends, sometimes it's like acquaintances. Uh, <laughs> but for the most part, it, it doesn't really affect me. It, it's kind of what makes the mom most comfortable. I just think it's kind of different. I can see the husband being there, but you know, to have all the extended family, it's still kind of a private thing. Yeah. And I think there's like methods for people to be placed in certain places where it's not so sensitive, you know. And like I said, it, it, a lot of times I think sometimes if you're the mother, it's kind of difficult to say, oh, I don't want this person in the room, blah, blah, blah. So I would say a lot of times <clears throat> what nurses try to do is kind of isolate the, you know, patient one on one so they can have like a discussion with them to see what they're comfortable with. And they can, you know, be kind of that person in the middle to say, hey. The um, nurse can be the bad guy. Right. Good cop, bad cop. Yes. And <laughs> I think that's one of the effective methods of kind of making sure that the people in the room are the people that the patient wants in the room. Okay. We talked about having babies. Now let's talk about uh, women who aren't having babies right now, maybe young teenagers uh, who need a gynecologist. Or, or at what age do you uh, get a gynecologist? Well, it kind of just depends. A lot of times, if you're already seeing your pediatrician, you could probably see them until you feel it's necessary. And then uh, when you want more of a grown-up doctor, that's perfectly fine. A lot of times, you know, 18 would be a reasonable age, but you often see people younger than that, too. A lot of times, uh, as far as, you know, like I said, medicine changes all the time. Mm -hmm. What we did 10 years ago or five years ago changes. And one of those is like uh, pap smears. For instance, you know, you don't probably need a pap smear until you reach the age of 21. And that would be probably a good landmark of when you need to start seeing a gynecologist too. But kind of like I said, when you're young, healthy, you don't even think about going to the doctor. So sometimes you might not see people till they actually have something that comes up. Okay, let's talk birth control. Have there been changes from when they initially had the pill, which was very strong, and then to the IUD and the sponge? They don't even do that anymore, do they? Yeah, that's not very commonly used yeah. anymore. But I would say, in general, kind of the um, market's kind of shifting towards things that are kind of long-term. And basically the reason why, like, they have IUDs or implants. Is that the Norplant? Is that well, what they it Is used that to be the Norplant. But oh. now I think the more common one is like Nexplanon or so. Okay. And the reason why I think we're moving towards those is because the failure rate is so low. It's not likely that you're going to get pregnant when you have one of these in place, opposed like a pill or a condom, which is kind of dependent on the user. Um, so I would say probably that's where the market's moving towards. And even if you do have like a long-term contraception, like an IUD might be for five years or the next bomb might be for three years. If you're ready and you meet that special someone, it could be taken out well before then and you go back to your normal fertility. So how does the implant actually work? Is it a tube? Yeah, it's just a little rod that goes underneath your skin or so. Uh, you can kind of feel it to know that it's present there and it kind of provides hormone with your body to suppress you to you know, make things necessary to have a baby. How long does it last? Well, up to, at this point, the research says that it's about three years or so. Hmm. So one implant then for three years. And then do they take it out and put a fresh one in? Yeah. Like if you want to continue using that form of birth control, you could take it out, put it in at the same time. What about IUDs? Anybody use those anymore? I think those are probably one of the more common uh, forms of contraception. Oh, really? Yeah. So they're pretty easily placed, like in the office, uh, and they're pretty easily taken out. They don't leave a scar, you know, and they have a very good rate of not getting pregnant. 
So how could people reach you to ask you questions about becoming their baby doctor or their uh, gynecologist? Well, I would say there's probably two good methods. One would be calling our office, the number of 913-596-4929, or the other way is you can go to our website, ProvidenceKC.com. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate the information. All right. I appreciate being here. Join us next time for another episode of Ask the Expert on Fox 4.